Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Would you pray with me, church? God, we give you praise for your presence among us this morning, that you do not have a rival, you don't have an equal. Lord, that you are great and that no one can stop you. And yet, God, while we were idolaters and sinners and saying and doing and thinking things that displeased you, you and your kindness and your mercy, you, you stepped down in the person of your Son and you lived the life that we should have lived and didn't. You died the death that we deserve to die and now don't have to because on the third day, Jesus, you conquered the grave. You are alive. You are risen and you are reigning and you are ruling in righteousness. And by the, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, God, you are drawing people to saving faith in Christ. God, not to, not to live for themselves, but to live for the one who came and died in their place. And Lord, today, if there's, if there's anyone here... God, who who does not know what it is to be saved, what it is to be rescued, what it is to be clean on the inside and to know the love of the Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus, God, I pray that you would work in their heart and that you would draw them to saving faith. And for your church, God, I pray that we would be strengthened and edified as we return to the book of Esther and we are reminded how great you are, God, that you are sovereign and you're in control and you win. Help us to delight in that today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn back to the book of Esther, we're in chapter 6, and we're going to cover um, the entirety of the chapter today in in a message that I am calling The Great Reversal. As we turn from chapter 4 into chapter 5 a couple weeks ago, we saw Esther counting the costs of following the Lord. You remember she went into a three-day fast and she decides to put her hands, uh, or her life rather, in the hands of the Lord. And yet, even though she's had the first of two feasts, nothing has really changed about the fundamentals, right? At this point in the story, she's still a Jew who hasn't disclosed her identity. There's still a decree of death against the Jewish people. Things have not yet improved, even though she's following the Lord. And I told you last week, be encouraged. Sometimes when you follow God's plan, things get worse before they get better. It's all right. God's still in control. Just keep trusting Him. And indeed, in this story, things have gotten worse, and Esther doesn't even know it. We saw last week that as Haman leaves the feast, he encounters Mordecai, who doesn't honor him, and Haman concocts a plan to kill Mordecai the very next morning. So so chapter 6 is going to show us something about the people of God and having faith in God. And here's what chapter 6 is going to show us. Are you ready for it? When we are tempted to get a big head about ourselves, chapter 6 shows us that salvation is the work of the Lord. Even in a book where no one mentions the Lord's name, the Lord is nevertheless writing the story. Esther 
trusts the Lord. She prepares a feast. But the story turns when the Lord works while Esther is sleeping. Indeed, chapter six, in chapter 6, Esther isn't even mentioned until the 14th verse of the chapter, the very last verse of the chapter. And Mordecai is just a, a passive participant while the Lord is invisibly turning things around and restoring the fortunes of His people. Our God is the Lord of the great reversal. One commentator says chapter 6 is a reversal of epic proportions. So let's, let's read about it, shall we? Let's hear the word of God, beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Of all the nights that the king could not sleep, it was on this night, between the two feasts, that King Ahasuerus just so happens to not be able to sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended to him said, Nothing has been done for him. The first thing I want to show you from these verses, verses 1 through 3, is that we can sleep if our trust and hope is in the Lord God Almighty, we can sleep. We can sleep because the Lord never does. In a a world where there are nuclear missiles and crazy world leaders and things go bonkers, we can sleep because the Lord never does. I don't know what you brought into the room this morning that might be stressing you out or stealing your sleep, but the Lord is over that. He is bigger than that. And we, therefore, can sleep. I I imagine if Esther had known what had happened with Mordecai and Haman after the feast, that she wouldn't have slept very well. I imagine that if Mordecai had known of Haman's plans to build the gallows and kill them the next morning, that Mordecai may not have slept very well. For Mordecai and Esther, we might say that their ignorance is bliss. They don't know. They sleep. But the reality is we do know. And that's the point. The text is written for us, the people who are reading the story. And what God wants us to know and what He's teaching us is that even when we know that the world is seeking to harm the people of God and undermine God's mission to glorify His Son, that the Lord still overrules it all for His glory. The Lord's not going to let Haman, excuse me, the Lord will let Haman build the gallows. But as Haman builds, the Lord interrupts the sleep of the king. Verse 1 literally says, and I think the slide says verse 6. I meant to say verse 1. I have no idea what I was thinking about. But in verse 1, the, the text literally says, the sleep of the king fled. The Lord Put the sleep of the king on the run. How is the Lord going to do the impossible in this situation? Not by parting the Red Sea. Not by making an axe head float. Not by calling down fire out of heaven. In this case, the Lord will do the impossible by giving the king some insomnia. That's it. Those who know the Lord can sleep 
Because we belong to the king who controls even the sleep of kings. And based on what we saw about this king in chapter 1 and the size of his harem in chapter 2, we might expect this king to ask for something other than a bedtime story. But that's what he asked for, somebody to read to him. And not just any bedtime story, not Dr. Seuss, but instead he asked for the chronicles. If you really want to sleep, what you ask for are the chronicles of the kingdom. You can't get more boring than the chronicles. I mean, I'm a history major, but I'm telling you, this is boring stuff. It's basically a a catalog of victories won and lands conquered and tributes imposed, just like a little fact list, no no commentary. It's just boring information. It's about as exciting as reading the updated privacy policy from your health insurance company. (laughs) Just want to sleep. Please. But in this case, when we hear that the Chronicles are mentioned as what the king requests, we go, God, really, is that what's really going to happen on the night that, that Esther needs something to turn so that her second feast will be successful? Is it really true that the king can't sleep and his sleep is put on the run? And then is it really true that the one book of all the books that he could ask for, if he's even going to ask for a book at all when he has a harem, and he'd probably ask for something else, he asks for a book, and then he doesn't just ask for a book, but he asks for the chronicles of the kingdom, and in that moment our ears go, Really? Because back in chapter 2, what happened to Mordecai? He saved the king. He saved his life from an assassination attempt, and the king gave him nothing for it and promoted Haman instead. And the only thing that Mordecai got, do you remember it? Chapter 2, verse 23, he got his name and the story recorded in the book of Chronicles. And that details in the story, and you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Just keep reading. You get to chapter 6. And this man who all he got was a mention in the Chronicles and it seemed so unfair at the moment. We realized that God was at work even in that moment recording something that he would need to be recorded later so that his life could be spared. It just so happens that the king on the night before Mordecai is to die and Esther's plan is to be thwarted, can't sleep. He asks for the Chronicles for five chapters. It looks like the people of God are headed for certain death and in one verse the whole story turns. Let me tell you, that's, that's how great your God is. What the world accumulates against you for five chapters, he can turn it around on a sleepless night in a single verse. That's true for some of you today. Your whole life, you've been running from something. You've been running headlong into sin. You've been avoiding what God wants to do in your life. He wants to rescue you from sin and death and from darkness and deliver you into life of hope and purpose. Is it going to be easy? No, but he wants to give you the forgiveness of your sin and a clean conscience so you can know the presence of God in your life. And in a moment, though, no matter how far you've been from God, in a moment he can turn it around through faith in Jesus Christ. One verse compared to five chapters, and suddenly God is on the move. Will the person reading to the king really just so happen to read of how Mordecai saved the king? I mean, the Chronicles are massive. Is he really going to read that? And of course the answer, you know what the answer is. Of course that's what he's going to read about. Because the Lord is working. His 
name isn't even mentioned in this story, but the Lord is working even when He isn't acknowledged, even when He's not seen, even when we are clueless about His presence, even when we are asleep, the Lord is working. And how do we know it? Because He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai said to Esther, look, if you're not willing to step up and help us, our help will come from another place. You don't have to do what God wants you to do because God will help us regardless. And guess what? Esther does step up and do what she can, but she still can't do what the Lord can do. Ultimately, Esther is still powerless. The, the help that comes to God's people is a help that comes from the Lord who invades the king's chambers and the king's mind and puts his sleep on the run. And then he leads him to ask for the Chronicles where he just so happens to read about Mordecai. The Lord is Mordecai's different place. He stands above it all. He can even shape the thought life of a pagan king. As Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. While Mordecai and Esther sleep and while Haman builds, the Lord is at work. And we know what's going to happen in verse 2. Before we even read it, of course, the story of Mordecai is what is going to be read. And then what happens in verse 3? The king who had been searching for sleep is startled awake. Now he's really awake. Hold on a second. You're telling me somebody saved my life and I didn't even know it? I didn't even honor him? You're telling me that I would be dead and not even having enjoying a sleepless night unless somebody saved me? That's exactly right. Well, what did we do for this guy? Nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zippo. No honor. No distinction. Nothing. Mordecai might have been pretty upset five years earlier when the king didn't honor him. But in the moment that he needed to be honored, the king of kings saw to it that he was rewarded. What Mordecai thought at the time was probably an oversight or an injustice was actually the Lord making a way to save his life. So I want to encourage you, church. The Lord does not forget your faithfulness to him. His promised rewards are often delayed. Indeed, his ultimate rewards are eternal rewards, are they not? The greatest reward is is seeing Christ when he returns and worshiping for him forever. His rewards are often delayed, but they are never denied. As we serve the Lord and the rewards seem not to come, we've got to remember that God is still working and his rewards will exceed our greatest expectations. We can sleep because the Lord is sovereign over all, working things out for the glory of Christ and the good of those who trust him. You believe that this morning? Well, how's it going to work out? Let's look at verses 4 through the end of the chapter. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman said to himself, of course Haman said this to himself, right? 
Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Verse 7, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the, no, excuse me, let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city. Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. What in the world can we learn from these verses I'm so glad you asked. I want you to get one big point. You ready for it? We should stand in awe of God. Look at what the Lord did. In a sleepless night of the king, he turns the whole story around and sets in motion the conquering of the proud and the rescuing of his people with an incomprehensible reversal. And it's a, it's a foreshadowing of, of an even greater reversal that's going to come when Jesus comes to take the place of sinners. Sinners who were headed for hell for eternity. And he faced down Satan and darkness and death and reversed it on the third day for all who will trust in him. When chapter 6 began, we had no idea how Esther's request could be well received by the king. Now in these verses, the story shifts dramatically and suddenly, unexpectedly and totally. In an instant, the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted. The plans of men are thwarted and the Lord wins and He wins big. We had a former president who talked about you're gonna, he's going to win so much that he's going to get tired of winning. And then he's going to win big. And I'm here to tell you that men think that they can win big. And they might win big for a season. But there's only one who wins big forever. And it is the Lord God Almighty. This section of verses is dripping with irony. Irony is a situation or an event that seems deliberately at odds with what one expects, and therefore the result is often amusing. There's, there's just some funny things in here. Haman, who hates Mordecai, ends up parading him around the very city that Mordecai had been crying in a few days before. In verse 4, the, the consequences keep coming as the irony, excuse me, the, the circumstances keep coming as the irony builds to a moment of great reversal 
for Haman and for Mordecai. It just so happens that as the king is looking for an official to help him come up with a plan to honor Mordecai, that Haman is coming into the outer court to come talk to the king about killing Mordecai. Not only will the, thwart, the Lord thwart Haman's plan, but he's also going to ensure that it's Haman who gets the lead role in honoring the man that he hates the most. Haman doesn't see it, but his stubborn determination to be honored like God is about ready to run headlong into the very providence of God. In verse 6, the king asks Haman, what should be done for the one the king wants to honor? Now remember, Haman had come to ask to be able to kill Mordecai. He had a question too that he wanted to ask the king, but rather than saying, well, Interesting you asked that, king. I have a request of you first. Could we talk about that? What are you thinking about? Instead, it takes one little idea that he might be a man that the king would want to honor, and he forgets the whole reason he came. And he assumes to himself, who would the king want to honor more than me? I mean, I'm his right-hand guy. And it's interesting to me that when Haman asked for the decree back in chapter 3 to destroy the Jewish people, that he did not say who the people were. I don't know if you remember that, but he says, I want a decree to destroy a certain people. He withheld the name. And now the king says, I want to honor a certain man. You say, well, who cares? What's the point? God is using Haman's own tactics against him. The king didn't tell him who he wanted to honor. Just let's suppose there's a man I wanted to honor. Who would it be? And now Haman is going to be upended by the very methods he used to get the decree of destruction against the people of God in the first place. As we will see, Haman's arrogant presumption sets him up for a monumental disgrace. He's so thrown off by the king's question and his arrogant assumption that he never bothers to get around to making his request about Mordecai. Instead, he immediately spouts out his dreams of glory in verses 7 through 9. This guy amazes me. He didn't even have to think about it. What should we do for the man that the king wants to honor? He didn't even have to open up his iPhone and get like the list that he had. It was in his brain. That's a great question, king. Let me tell you about all that I've been dreaming about my whole life. What does he want? He wants to be the king. He wants to honor the, clean, the king's, excuse me, he wants to wear the king's clothes. He wants to ride the king's horse. He wants to be paraded through the city and celebrated like the king. One commentator named Duguid writes this, Haman's parade would process through the populous plaza of the city so everyone would see the extent of his honor Listen to this. This was his dream day. What's your dream day? What's your dream day? Are you the center of it? Everybody celebrating your greatness? Everyone telling you how wonderful you are? Or do you have a different sort of dream day? A day when the king of glory returns. When he breaks the eastern sky. And we celebrate him. Because he is worthy 
to wear the royal robes. Because he will come riding on the white horse of victory. What is your dream day? And short of that day, what is your dream day? Is it a, is it a week-long vacation? Is it a holiday at the, the campyard or the campground or wherever it is you... Campyard. What is a campyard? A campground. Wherever it is, is your holiday, is your dream day about you or is it about Jesus? Because you know what the... I, don't get me wrong. I want to take a vacation. I want to I do some great and wonderful things, but my dream day, and I pray that your dream day centers in the glory of Christ. My dream day is when this place is filled up to overflowing. We got people in overflow coming out of our ears. We got TVs in every room, and I don't care if it's me preaching or any of you preaching, but the gospel's going out, and people are hearing it, and they're being saved. That's my dream day. I want to see people come to saving faith in Christ frequently. What's your dream day? Haman's dream would soon be a nightmare. All along, he was making plans to honor, he thought himself, but actually Mordecai. And in verse 9, Haman suggests that one of the king's most noble officials lead the effort. Of course, he's thinking, I'm going to be honored, so find some other noble official. He's the most noble official in the kingdom. Maybe he even thought Mordecai would be parading him around the city, but instead, it would be Haman, the most noble official of all, parading around Mordecai like he was the king. Oh, it's so good. Between chapter 5 and what we see in Haman in chapter 6, I pray that the Lord would reveal to us if we have Haman in our hearts, if we're the ones who want to be the center of the show, if we're the ones who want to be paraded around the city like a king, rather than being the ones who want to parade Jesus around the city and make Him known and make Him famous. Because at the end of the day, we are servants of the Lord. And you remember what Jesus says in Luke 17, 10, when we have done all that we were commanded, the faithful servants of the Lord will say, listen, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. But that wasn't Haman's attitude, was it? And in verse 10, the reversal of fortunes is clearly underway. The king tells Haman to do everything he just suggested for Mordecai and to leave nothing out. By the way, don't just honor Mordecai. Everything you just had on your list, be sure to do all those things. Can, can you imagine Haman's face when the king said he would be leading a parade to honor Mordecai? Can, can you imagine the looks on the faces of the officials who knew about the spat between Mordecai and Haman? Uh, what's going on here? Haman wanted to kill Mordecai, and now Mordecai is being paraded around on a horse by Haman. Haman, who had been crying out in grief days before for a decree written against all Jewish people, now rides the king's horse as Haman cries out for all of the people to honor him. What in the world is going on? The Lord is reversing things. In verse 12, we see that when Mordecai's parade is over, he simply returns to the king's gate. Mordecai had a job to do. He was a king's official. He's waiting for the people of God to be delivered. He doesn't even really understand what he's been delivered from, but that's not enough. He wants to see all of God's people delivered, so he goes back to the king's gate where he has access to Esther, and he waits. Meanwhile, 
Haman hurries home. Just like he had made haste to build the gallows and get to the king, now he hurries home mourning with his head covered. Mordecai had been mourning the condition of God's people days before, and now Haman is mourning because the reversal is coming down on his own head. He goes back home. Home is where Haman had gone in chapter 5. Do you remember? When, when Mordecai dishonored Haman, where did Haman go? He went home. And he went home so people would tell him how great he was. Whenever his pride was wounded, he would, he would go home and people would say, you're so wonderful. That's not what they told him this time. He went back home and his wise men and his wife Zeresh, the same people who told him to build a gallows for Mordecai the Jew, now say if Mordecai is of the Jewish people, verse 13, your, your downfall has only just begun and there's nothing you can do to stop it. This, this is amazing to me. It's a picture of the world. In chapter 5, they said, Mordecai is a Jew, just kill him. In chapter 6, when God brings about a reversal, once again, for his people, they go, oh, Mordecai is a Jew, we're in trouble. Did you know that the world does that over and over again with Jesus? Over and over again in the Old Testament, Nations rise up against Israel and they're like, this time we're going to take out the messianic line. This time we're going to take out the promises of God and the Son of God. And it's going to be all over. And then God steps in and they're wrong. And when Jesus went up to Calvary and Satan entered Judas, Satan thought once more, we're taking this guy out. And on the third day, they realized once again, they were wrong. Until Jesus returns, the world's going to keep getting it wrong about Jesus. But when Christ returns, the reversal will be great, and it will be final, and it will be irreversible, and if you are not on His team, you will suffer the consequences forever. That's how it was with Haman, and that's how it will be with us unless we trust in Jesus, the Messiah who comes through the line of the Jews. And just as his advisors tell him what's going on and what his fate will be, the eunuchs from the king come in and say, it's time for that second feast that you were so excited you were going to a little bit ago. A feast that I am sure he was hoping Esther would just forget about. Just like that, church, the tables turn, the Lord chooses to step in for the glory of his son, and he wins big time. Nothing can Stop him. Those who opposed him will get the shame they deserve forever. So what are some takeaways we can get from chapter 6? I want to share with you four very briefly as I close this message. First, make sure you're not a Haman. Don't, don't be working against the plan of God, living for the praise of men and likes on Facebook and attaboys at the office. Live for the honor of King Jesus. And the scary truth, church, is that it is possible to appear to be godly, but really just be prideful. Ask the Pharisees. Paul says that this is being self-deceived. One pastor says this, We may be prospering in our business or career, 
surrounded by people who care about us and respect our integrity, enjoying the good life in every way, just as Haman was, but the seeds of our destruction are still germinating like a hidden cancer. Our whole life has been built around serving and idolatry, feeding our own sense of what would make us feel honored in the sight of the world. Our fall could be just as sudden and inescapable as Haman's, taking us from our present comforts to face a holy God in an instant. This morning, if your confidence is in your goodness or what you can earn or deserve, stop being Haman before it's too late. Secondly, like Mordecai, if you're honored, don't let it go to your head. Mordecai is honored. What does he do after he's honored? He goes back to the king's gate and does his job. Don't let the praise of men give you a big head. Keep living for the glory of the true king. Go all in for Jesus. Do you remember the the parable in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says somebody gives a wedding feast? And he says, look, it's, it's a wedding banquet. And if you're invited to the wedding banquet, where should you sit? He says, sit in the, in the worst seat in the house. Because to be invited to the banquet with Jesus is honor enough. It is good enough to be honored to feast with Jesus. Amen? To get in on that party is a great blessing and a great honor. So if you know Jesus, don't get into the camp and get the big head and seek honor and seek prestige and seek position. Just be content to know and love Jesus and be a part of His banquet. And if the host of the feast chooses to ask you to come on and sit closer, then all glory be to Christ. But don't set yourself down in a place of honor, because as Jesus concludes that parable, He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thirdly, remember the Lord is working even when it seems that the world is is winning. The Lord is winning. Excuse me, the Lord is working even when it seems the world is winning. I I don't know what you brought in to this room today. I don't know what trial you're facing. I don't know what pain you are harboring. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if perhaps your prayers feel like they don't get any further than the ceiling of the room that you are in, but I want to urge you to see in this text today that the Lord does win. He does indeed conquer. The Lord may be, as He is in Esther, writing a story in your life to prove how great and awesome He is. Things might have to get worse before they get better. But if you are on Team Jesus, the Lord does win. Duguid says this, We ought to have an unshakable confidence that despite all appearances, God will act to bring about the salvation of His people. This confidence should drive us to act boldly in faith. And the last thing I want you to see in this text is that chapter 6 is anticipating the Lord's ultimate victory through the dramatic reversal made possible through Jesus. Haman built a gallows for Mordecai. Mordecai was headed for the gallows. He was facing certain death. And then, suddenly, remarkably, miraculously, it is Haman who ends up hanging 
on the very gallows that he constructed. I want to share with you something that I found interesting in the book of Esther. Did you know that the word for gallows in Esther is actually the word tree? Now you say, what is the significance of that? Everywhere else in the Old Testament, the word gallows is translated tree. In the creation account, in Deuteronomy, when we read, cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. Same word as gallows in Esther. And then we get over to Galatians chapter 3.13 and we read about a man who bore a curse that we deserved and we know that he did because the Old Testament told us that he would and his name is Jesus, the one who was cursed because what did he do? He hung on a tree. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Because this is good stuff. Mordecai was headed to be cursed as a man hanging on a tree. But instead, he was decorated with robes, and he got to wear the king's crown, and he got to ride on a horse. But we know a man who is the king of glory. He is the king of kings, and he came down, and rather than wear the king's robes and wear the royal crown, he was whipped, and he was beaten, and he was naked, and he bore his cross, even though he shouldn't have had to do it. And he did it for you so that, like Mordecai, you wouldn't have to go to the gallows. He said, I'll take their curse. I'll hang on that tree. I'll bear the weight of their sin. And on the third day, I'll reverse it. And I will clothe them with with my righteousness. And they will walk in the power of the Spirit. And they will proclaim a gospel of a king who laid himself down like a slave. Like a bond slave who went and he came to die. Not just any death, but the death of the cross. So that on the third day when he was raised from the grave, all who would trust in him, their sin could be buried and cast as far as east is from west. They could have a clean conscience and they could know that their king is coming again. And when he comes, he will wear those robes. And when he comes, he will wear that crown. And when he comes, he will ride that horse. And all who trust in him now can have freedom and a clean conscience. And we can live for him. And we can tell the whole world, I know a king who gave his life for me. And if you'll turn from your sin and you'll trust in this king, you can have a share in his victory forevermore. Do you know this king? Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we give you praise. King Jesus, we give you praise that you came. You are worthy of all honor and glory. Spirit of God, we thank you for your presence in this sanctuary today and no doubt in the gymnasium as well and in the homes of those who are listening online. And God, I pray this morning, if there's anyone wrestling with the reality that they are sinners headed for the gallows, God, that you would help them see that in Christ and in Christ alone, they they do not have to face everlasting torment and death for their sin because Christ has already taken it and conquered it and buried it. And I pray, God, that you would give liberty for whoever needs it today to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, the risen King. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. 
We hope to meet you soon.